A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. It's an Easter lockdown special featuring me, Mike Calvin, Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and Seb Stafford Bloor from Football 365. Go on, admit it. Everyone is a sucker for good transfer rumours. They sell newspapers, pile on the clicks, and boost ratings. But are they in keeping with the spirit of what will be a new age in football? Will the transfer system even survive the inevitable financial correction? What do you think, Seb? Oh, I don't know, Mike. I mean, actually, I I really liked a um, a suggestion Adrian made a couple of episodes ago where if a club have opted to use the furloughing scheme, then they're actually prohibited from making summer transfers. But I, I wonder, I mean, I... I think I wonder more about the the appetite for transfers than I do about the mechanic because sort of when we, when we emerge from this, the game will grind back into life, but a lot of people will still be facing a lot of hardship and no doubt sort of all the measures which have been introduced to protect the population during these last few months, they there'll be a bill in the post for that. There'll be a, a tax implication. There'll be a, a lifestyle implication. So whether football can really carry on sort of spending decadently and 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 throwing money at, at, at players kind of in, in a kind of endless pursuit of ambition, I don't know. It's it's almost a taste thing, isn't it, Mike? Yeah, it certainly is. Do you think that, you know, on the practical side, eh, Uli Hernes said a, a week or so ago that he couldn't foresee a 100 million euro or pound transfer in the future he just thinks the the finances won't add up do you agree with that no I don't really if I'm being honest I think that at the moment football doesn't matter football transfers seem completely irrelevant but we will I'm sure return to normality and once football's back I think we'll fall back into it quite nicely and players will still want to further their careers clubs will still have ambition to win trophies. That, that that but in fact, individuals within clubs, players, managers, board members, have had a little bit of thinking time. They might their appetite for the game might be even stronger than it was before. I agree that it doesn't feel right at the moment, and I also agree that spending extortionate amounts of money on players may be more difficult in the financial climate that's to come. That that much is obvious. But football will find a way, I'm sure, to carry on 
doing business. And and look, we, we kind of need the football economy to get up, back up and running, don't we, for to feel normality again and to get the money back into football clubs that will have struggled in the interim period. What we will see, in my opinion, looking into the crystal ball, is a few vultures um, circling the clubs that they perceive as weak clubs that have maybe been hit hardest by the economic impact of coronavirus. When they've got good players available, I can see the big boys flexing their muscles pretty early doors to cash in and, and make the most of it. I, I, it. It seems distasteful at the moment, but I'm convinced it will happen. Yeah, I suppose if we are going to go into that 100 million plus territory, Seb, what type of player will basically fill that void? And I'm thinking, would it be a younger player, a potential marquee player? So I'm thinking about people like Jaden Sancho, Kylian Mbappe, those type of players? Yeah, definitely, Mike, because I, I, I think that's the trend in the market now. I mean, the problem with the, well, the, the benefit of investing in a young player, so I think a, probably a good example is someone like Yao Felix, you can suffer... And initially, you know, what looks like a, a bad return on your investment. Jao Felix hasn't had a particularly good season at Atletico Madrid. He's been, he remains awesomely talented. But because the potential remains latent, his value retains itself. So in a, in a, in a way, there's less risk in, in, in spending large on a player like that. I don't see any problem in spending that amount of money in, on a, on a Jadon Sancho type. He's obviously extremely talented and well worth his fee. But I think what's interesting is that even someone like Harry Kane, who... Is really could really can be considered to be in his prime. He's 27 years old. I know he's got an injury history, but people are already saying, "Well, no, you, you can't spend 150 million pounds on him." He's the England captain. He's a he's a proven goal scorer, and yet that still makes sense because you think, "Well, this is if you're going to be spending fees like that, then financial fair play mandates that you must have a resale value somewhere." unless you're an awesomely powerful commercial entity, which you know, most clubs are not. There are very, very few clubs who fit into that category. So I think that kind of money is going to be reserved for the, for the players under 23 going forward. And, and for anybody else, it's going to be very hard to meet valuations or get them out of contracts or, or meet yeah. uh, release fees. Yeah, Mike, I think, I think that, that what we might see is, is unfortunately clubs sort of running themselves into, into even more debt. That's the problem because they... Once the juices get flowing and the competitiveness comes back, I, d- I don't see them wanting to to stand still. And this is where financial fair play would come in, which is obviously kind of, well, it's, it's, it's failed to, to a large degree, hasn't it, financial mm. fair play? I think what we might have to see UEFA do here, or FIFA, whoever's going to call it, is maybe turn it back into more of a, the model that we see with the lower league clubs in England, whereby you if you, you can't afford to run up a certain amount of debt before spending X amount of money, that would be the way forward. I think I think the whole turnover business has to be shelved, for percentage of turnover has to be shelved for the time being because everybody will be in, all over the place financially. So, so yeah, I, we will get there. I'm, I'm convinced of it because trophies will still up, be up for grabs. Players will still be in their prime. Harry Kane will still want to go out there and make the most of, of his individual career. I don't think that, that what's happening right now, the crisis will prevent him moving on if that's what he wants to do. But, you know, Aid, you, you know players better than most. Um, mm. Do you think that some will seek to exploit the situation to their own end? Yeah, so, for course. instance, do you think we'll will. <laughs> see an increasing number of players running down their contracts? 
Yeah, I do. I, I also think contracts will be cancelled left, right and centre. I think there'll be a lot of free transfers flying all over the place for players that maybe wouldn't have been granted free transfers before. Clubs will, will need to trim wage bills and they'll say, look, we're not going to ask a fee for you on this occasion. We need to get you off the books. Off you go. And of course, when that happens, those free transfer players will then quite understandably look to command highish salaries elsewhere because there's no fee. I, I think that will change. I think that will be the big change. A lot more players will go for free than we see right now. And absolutely players, and, and more, more importantly, really, agents who... And, and, and no one feels sorry for agents at the moment, but agents aren't making money the same as same as the rest of us. They will be looking to make up for shortfalls too, and they will be busier, I'm sure, than ever in trying to manufacture movement between clubs and, and players. So, yeah, I, I think I actually think the activity could, could go up fairly rapidly once those windows are open. Yeah, I, I can foresee a time where agents will focus most of their attention on the younger element you know I, I go to academy games and you see now more and more agents there trying to be get get the players at the start of the process for instance is that something you could see happening um seb yes i think so i mean i i, I think it's probably been happening since the agent market became deregulated because for, for a new agent or someone that, that wants to exist in the marketplace without a reputation that's really got to be the only way into the industry. That being said, it worries me because I don't like agents being attached to young players when they have an agenda to progress themselves, when they have a, a financial need. I, I fully accept that the cliche that most of us have drawn about agents over the years is a bit too generalised. But at the same time, it's not as if we're lacking instances in which young careers are being hijacked or directed in a certain way to suit the financial aims of, of a representative. And, and I, I'm strictly against anything that involves not doing whatever is in the best interests of the player. So it worries me. I, I completely agree it will be a trend. And also with what we said about free transfers, the role of the agent is going to be really, really important over the next few months, probably even over the next few years. And that's not a particularly comforting thought. No. What do we think should happen with the in regards to the window, boys? Because I th- I can see this season ending potentially in the autumn. Let, let's say, none of us know, of course, but let's say it ends towards the back end of September and then they have a two-week break and then we kick off again with 2021. That's not long enough, is it, to have a, a window open? What do we think? I, I'm thinking open the window from the moment this current season ends and maybe just leave it open until the new year or something like that and just have the one window in the season just to allow the clubs to, to recalibrate. I don't know. What, yeah, what well, FIFA, FIFA were talking earlier last week about permitting a new transfer window between the old and the new seasons. But as mm. you say, Aid, that's probably sure. not going to be long enough, is it? I, I would just no. basically probably say, well, look, let's go the cycle of the next season. So you know, just keep the window open as it used to yeah. be without basically not have a window, just have an open yeah. house for say, however long that season would be six months, eight yeah. months, whatever well, it would be. The, the, the first, at least the first half of the season. I, I, we always had that deadline. And I think it's important to keep that deadline because when I don't think you can have the window open at the business end of the season, but yeah, 
I do I do agree for the for the bulk of the following season. You know it's going to be important. I mean, you, I I I know it's essential that clubs are able to creep, but I I think it's going to be more important that some clubs are able to sell um, and mm. cover shortfalls with you know not only getting players' contracts off their books, but covering losses with a one or two big sales possibly and. And I think, yeah. you know, given how fluid the situation is going to be, you've got to have the flexibility of a, a non-window, like Mike described. Just say, look, it's it's open and you now have the utility to do whatever you have to do to secure your financial future. I think that's essential. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. that's what I mean with the vulture circling. Yeah. The, the, the clubs that need the money will we'll sell players. And, and clubs will, will try and get rid of big contracts, won't they? You know, if you take as a, a you know a case in point, actually proven over the last sort of year or so, someone like Gareth Bale, I noticed he'd been linked in almost like a package with Hamis uh, Rodriguez, um, going to Everton. As it stands, I can't see any English club being able to pick up the sort of wages that a Gareth Bale is earning at Real Madrid. <laughs> no chance. I mean, when I saw that story, I thought. How on earth are they going to afford him? You know, but that's the reason he's still still at Real Madrid. It's that no one really on the planet can afford Gareth Bale, and those that can aren't in desperate need for him. So yeah, he, he really is stuck. I think Gareth will never have a contract as as lucrative as the one that he's on right now. But look, you know, if he if he if he takes the wage cut, it happens to all of us. Look, we can't. We can't all continue to go on an upward trajectory, can we, in terms of our earnings? We all want to, but sooner or later you have to think, right, okay, maybe that was my peak earning potential and, and, and now I'll, I'll accept much lower. And look, when, when he does make that move, a team will get, will get a heck of a good player because I still, I still rate him so highly, Gareth Bale. He'll be brilliant for somebody, but probably on half the money. Yeah, I, I could see him ending up at somewhere like Bayern Munich, actually. And, you know, speaking of Bayern, you've got, you know, the situation now where Hansi Flick has actually signed his managerial contact till, till 2023. I know we're in a province of ifs, buts and maybes, Seb, <laughs> but as things stand, would you make Bayern favourites if and when the Champions League resumes? Yeah, it's very tempting, isn't it? Because, you, you I mean, with Liverpool now out, I mean, I, I still, even though they are out, I still see them as the best team in Europe. Now, with them out of the competition, I, it, it's, it's a bit of a free-for-all and Bayern look awfully strong. And I, I have to say that I, I think it's not a question of them being obviously better than every other side. It's more that every other side is more obviously flawed. I know it's a bit of a contrarian's approach and a perspective on it, but there's more stability there. A lot of other clubs are in periods of great flux betwixt and between eras or in such a, a state as a result of what we're experiencing now that it becomes very difficult to forecast their route forward. I like what Bayern are doing there, Mike, because I I presume the logic there is to keep Flick in, in situ until 2023, at which point Julian Nagelsmann has completed his time at RB Leipzig and then he moves to the club. You can see the continuity building there and I really like that as a strategy because obviously the players are reacting to what's there at the moment. That's been a good solution. And then Nagelsmann, I, I don't, it's one of the worst kept secrets in European football, isn't it, that he will eventually go there. So I, it's, um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense and I, I like where they're headed. Mm. You a fan? Hey? But yeah, very much so, yeah. I, I think Hansi Flick has done a brilliant job. Obviously, he learned a lot working with uh, Jurgi Love with the national team, all those 
all those years. I think a number of things he's, he, he's done that, that are worthy of note. I think going back to Thomas Muller, putting his arm around him and mm. making him a fixture in the 11 was, was a smart move. He's not done as a top flight player. Thomas Muller, he's been sensational. I mean, they are, a, they are a very good team. I mean, you've still got Lewandowski doing the business. You've got Muller, Coman and, and Gnabry off them. You've got a midfield unit that's in their prime, Thiago and, and Kimmich. You've got Alaba, who I've, I've always loved. And also Boateng. I think Boateng is probably the, the weak link, actually. Definitely passed his best. And, and, you know, Davis, Alfonso Davis. Wow, what a, what, a, what a lightning bolt of a fullback he is. So, yeah, I, I, I find it hard to find too many faults with, with Bayern. And, and, yeah, I think, I think that I would personally, judging on what I've seen of them in the Champions League, I don't watch them every week in the Bundesliga, but based on what I've seen of them in the Champions League, I think they will make the final. I really do. Yeah. Speaking of management and German football, let's get into our next batch of managerial assessments, if we could. As you remember, we're judging the Premier League managers, all 20 of them, on their status as leaders and tacticians and coaches and communicators. And obviously there has to be an element of their overall body of work in this assessment. I'd like to start this time around with another German manager, uh, Daniel Farker at Norwich, a team which probably has been punished for its naivety. Lovely to watch, I think a terrifically well-run football club. And in Stu Weber, I think is is a, a prototypical sporting director who I think will probably end up at a massive club and, and do something pretty significant. Seb, how does Farker fit in to the, the Norwich model, do you think? Well, he's a component, isn't he, Mike? I mean, he was he was brought to the club to fulfil a purpose. We've touched on this before. We spoke about it in relation to Mikel Arteta and about Gareth Southgate. You have a manager. The old school of management was you bring in someone who's a figurehead, who's a leader, who becomes a sort of Pied Piper and, and is supposed to lead a way towards something. Whereas... With, with, with someone like Farker, you're, you're, you're there as an extension of everything that exists at the club. And that includes someone like Weber. That includes the recruiting dynamic. And you, the result is a tranquility. So, for, in, for instance, when one of, one of Norwich's issues this season has been an unwillingness to push all their chips into the middle of the table for the sake of Premier League survival, which is a very smart decision. Now, ordinarily in that situation, if you've got a manager who is a careerist, who is thinking of a a path beyond a certain club, that causes a problem. That causes atmosphere, that causes things to leak out into the press. Whereas in this situation, Norwich have kind of, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but they've, they've been very accepting of their fate. They've got on with it. They've played some nice football. They've probably cultivated a few players that will earn them a lot of money in the summer or whenever the window opens, thinking of Cantwell, but probably also Buendia. And the result is harmony. The result is something that looks like it works and something which almost transcends the threat of relegation. And I I think that's been the great virtue of their partnership this season. Yeah. yeah. Who, who's impressed you, Aid, in, in terms of the way... Um, Farker has worked tactically with, with his players. I don't think he's the greatest communicator by any stretch of the imagination. But as a as a tactician and a coach, how would you assess him? Very good. He's got a strong philosophy, clearly. It's a philosophy that, that worked amazingly 
at championship level. That he, he filled the players with the belief that that they could receive the ball anywhere on the pitch and, and play one-two touch through the lines, no matter who they were up against. And and it worked. And it, and it, I mean, it led to some thrilling matches and they, 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 they flew by the seat of their pants an awful lot on the way to promotion. But but it was it must have been a joy to, to play for him. Very clear identity. Recruited the right players to fit into that model. My criticism of him, and I, and I completely agree with everything that Seb said there, the harmony was the right word, for sure. But I also think that for, for Daniel himself, it's a slight slight on his on his managerial credentials that he's been prepared to stick with it. Because at what stage do your your fighting instincts come out? At what stage do you think, you know what, we need to do something different here in order to survive? And I really, really want to survive above above all else. It, it just feels to me that he's been too laid back about that. Uh, and for that reason, I think, actually, he, he, his reputation is slightly damaged in some people's eyes, in my eyes, for whatever that's worth, I think it's slightly damaged because I would want my manager, if I was a player for Norwich, great to have the philosophy, but I also want to stay a Premier League player. I want to survive. And I would look as a player and think, shouldn't we be trying to do something a little bit differently to keep things tight? Well, you know, one manager you couldn't accuse of being laid back is is Pep Guardiola. You know, I, I want to start this by... I'm sure I'll be speaking for both of you as well to pass on our condolences to him for the loss of his mother due to the coronavirus. Perspective is very painfully gained. And if you look at Guardiola as an individual, he to me embodies how immersive management is and how obsessive you can become within it. He's spoken in the past, Seb, about you know, the need to have his, you know, his one year in New York, the talk about trying to get out of football by the time he's 50. Can you see City being his last club job? Well, that's a big question. I can, but on the only, not because of him, but on the basis that I, I can't see where else he'd go at the moment. Bayern Munich, there was always that sense of unfinished business, but that's not going to happen. The political situation back at Barcelona is too prohibitive. He's not going there. Maybe you could make a case for Juventus. Whether there's enough financial primacy in Italian football for that to be realistic, I don't know. Although I'm sure he'd like that notch on his CV, the person to bring the Champions League to Turin. I don't know. I, I think one thing strikes me with Guardiola in that, say, for instance, he he was to, on the old sort of, had, had coronavirus not happened and the season was finishing in, in its designated spot, it was coming to an end in, in the summer. If he were to walk away from Manchester City, then he would have lost a battle, in a sense. He would have been undone by this new, you know, ferocious incendiary brand of football that Jurgen Klopp has preached. And that is very much, he becomes, he becomes the sort of the, 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 the beater in the equation from a coaching standpoint. Now, what Guardiola will want to do is, no matter how brilliant he is, he still has an ego. We know this from the press conference we've done with him. He will want to retain that primacy. He will want to be leaving the game, retiring, semi-retiring, at a point where he is at the very, very peak. So his next club or his next move will be instructed by whatever allows him to regain that primacy, if that makes sense. Because I, it's, it's interesting because almost 
Klopp's football, what Liverpool are, it's almost a question whether they have an answer at the moment. And it is Guardiola's place to come up with that answer. That is his role. So that's that's what will instruct what happens next, I think. Yeah, he'll burn out, won't he? He has to burn out because he, he's so intense. You can't... I don't think you can live your life for, for 30, 40 years as a, as a top flight manager the way he does. It, or he'll have to change, I guess, his impro- approach. I just think he's a great one of the game's great innovators tactically he's always looking to come up with something new a new a new tactic a new nuance within within a framework of a shape i i love that about him i, I do think he's a he's as close to managerial genius as as is out there at the moment pep guardiola I, I just think he's he's phenomenal but he's got challenges on his hands because his manchester city team right now is flawed and you know they've fallen behind liverpool and He's got work to do. He's certainly got a lot more work to do in this job. It's just whether he's got that hunger and appetite to do it. This break, by the way, might just might just keep him at Manchester City that little bit longer. I felt compelled that this might be his last year there and that he, he needed a breather. But but we're getting a breather, so to speak, now. So it might actually prolong his stay at the Etihad. Yeah, I, I, I can agree with that. Because the one thing that has never dimmed with him is his sense of curiosity I suppose you know I was reading even just this morning funnily enough about how he'd been influenced by Russian ice hockey and the tactical patterns <laughs> within that yeah, um, yeah, you know yeah. the, all coaches are magpies they take things from here and there and I suppose that then makes them able to work in any country in any circumstance which probably leads us into the next manager Ralph Hassenhutl at Southampton it strikes me, Seb, that he's been consistently underrated. Would you agree? I definitely think so. But I, I think that's almost right, not his own fault, but as a result of how his time at, at Southampton has gone. I actually covered his first game, which was at Cardiff, which was one they lost very narrowly. And you had that initial period of recovery from what he inherited from Mark Hughes, where Southampton did prove immeasur- immeasurably. And, and actually, it was quite like sort of, I, I suppose seeing someone par a golf course with somebody else's clubs. It, it worked very, very well. And then obviously at the beginning of this season, it became a whole lot more negative. And so the recovery has been pockmarked by what looked like initial managerial bounce followed by recession. But I think people are starting to wake up to, to what he's provided now because Southampton, not, not only has Southampton become a far better side, but he's also got a, a much a much stronger reaction. He sort of he's provoked form from players that had really, really dipped at St Mary's and had looked like wasted transfers. Danny Ings is the obvious one. Nathan Redmond more so last season than this one. Ryan Bertrand has also had a tremendous recovery. You've seen some real improvements in the defence for a team that conceded nine goals at home. Um, <laughs> they really have recovered remarkably well, and I, I think I think that speaks exceptionally well to or vividly to his his powers of man management and how can you not be impressed by that yeah I get the sense that Southampton is a club which has almost been rebooted there's Reed, who had a you know a huge overarching influence on the club has gone to the FA there does seem to be a sense that Southampton are almost rediscovering themselves I think so. Yeah, I, I really like Ralph Hasenhut. I like the cut of his jib right from the word go. I think he lost his way, actually. It, it can happen where you overcomplicate things in your own mind. And he started to mess around with the shape of the team too much. And, and what he's done, he's gone back, in a tactical sense, he's gone back to what made him successful 
with his previous clubs. And that's that, that box like for two, two, two formation. And, and, and since going back to it, they have absolutely been flying. Yeah. So, so I think he will have learned lessons through the, the hard times. Yeah, I've said it before. I was there at Emirates earlier on in the season when they turned the corner, I think against Arsenal, sensational performance. They were in bits at the time. It was a 2-2 draw, but it was a 2-2 battering. They were quite brilliant and they maintained it. And unfortunately for that, well, actually, they just just tailed off a little bit ahead of this enforced break. So maybe the timing was good for them. But, but yeah, he's re-energised the team. I think tactically he's good. But for me, he's, he's, for me, he is like Klopp. He's, he's a dynamic personality manager that just fires his players up. They want to run through walls for him. Uh, and and that I think is his greatest quality. You know, I I I completely agree. I think his second most eminent quality is probably the tone he sets when he speaks about his team, when he speaks about his players, when he speaks about results that haven't quite gone Southampton's way. There are no excuses. Now, with all due respect to to Mark Hughes, Mark Hughes is an excuses manager. He's <laughs> a blame the referee. This wasn't right. The weather was wrong. He was that guy. And I remember the contrast in that first press conference when I, I think, um, I can't remember which defender it was that made the mistake that allowed the one goal in that game. But a reporter asked, so sort of what, what have you said to, it might have been Jan Bednarek, what have you said to him after the game? And he was like, well, nothing. He's made a mistake. You know, he's got to fix it himself. And I really like accountability. I really like the sort of, I know it's a bit of a simplification. It's kind of a mediaism on my behalf. But I think... When you have a manager whose public face is not accusatory, but not accepting of the kind of the soft excuses that play well in the mm. press, I really like that. And mm. I, I think that's something he yeah. brought as well. You know, you know what that is? It's confidence. If you're confident in yourself, you can be honest and open and, and just and, and be like that. When, you, when, you've got, when you're doubting yourself, that's when you want to protect yourself. And, and, and that's when the excuses come out, in my view. Yeah. <coughs> Next up, Roy Hodgson the great elder statesman of uh, English football, but someone who's almost a globe. well, he is a global figure, very regimented tactically. He absolutely hates losing. You know, he is, he, you know, you see him in press conferences and you ask him a question, he can be objectionable. And if you look at him in, mm-hmm. you know, out of context, you think, well, what are you doing? But actually within context, I, I love that, that passion for the job. And it's, you know, sometimes you, know, you saw he was basically battered down by the Liverpool job and also by the England job. And I thought that we'd seen pretty much the last of him. But what he's done at Crystal Palace in the last couple of seasons has been fantastic. Uh, what a resilient guy. Amazing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, just so resilient. Like you say, I mean, it ended disastrously with England. It it would have it would have finished off lesser men. Yeah, I, I, actually, like, I actually love... How moody he gets with, with journalists. I mean, there's some some great videos knocking around, aren't they, of stuff off camera with 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 Roy Hodgson, and and yeah, it's just sort of just it makes me feel like I wish I was as much of a bad loser as he is when I'm that age. Sort of thing, you know, it's, age is not mellowed him at all. Look, he's got limitations tactically, for sure, but that man can organise a defence. He can set up a solid shape and. I think what he's doing with Crystal Palace is, is unreal, really. I think seven out of ten managers would have would have probably been relegated with the Crystal Palace squad that he's got, and the, and the fact that he's kept them kept the 
the trapdoor at arm's length so, so comfortably is is a testament to his organizational skills and and i like the fact as well that he brings in other people to work alongside him that are younger that are more relatable to the players because that is a slight issue i think in this day and age he is he's a granddad isn't he compared to these guys we talked about chris wilder we were talking on the previous show chris wilder you know telling his players about brian robson they'd never they'd never heard of him or never saw him play i mean i mean roy hodgson must must seem so ancient to some of those, some of those younger players at Palace. Not that there are that many. So, so I think he's doing doing a brilliant job in those circumstances too. Yeah, you talk about bringing younger people in around him. If you brought older people in, it would be like last of the summer wine, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, I, I suppose the one thing that comes across, and it's perhaps is it you know his Italian experiences, he is a training ground coach, isn't he? And that. You know, the element of repetition bores players to death, but it makes them better. You agree with that, Seb? Yeah, I think so. And I think the the results of that are seen in individual performances because he's been able to coach himself around some pretty awful recruitment. If you look at the tools he's been given to do that job, and particularly up front, the lack of a, a you know, a, a scoring forward, I think... You know, I, I think it's a measure of Roy Hodgson. He's been able to get such a tune out of Jordan Ayew, like a player that's not really a forward, who's not, he doesn't really have a, a kind of a proper designation on the pitch, the proper position. He's been able to, he's scored goals, important goals all over the place. Okay, not a huge amount of volume, but productivity-wise, he's scored all sorts of goals. And I think it's kind of, in a way, it's it's obviously good for Palace in the short, come, in, in the short term, but over the long term, I wonder whether it's it's prevented Hodgson's management is preventing them from having to ask deeper questions of their football structure. When was the last time, for instance, they made a profit on a player? When was the last time Abe mentioned it in this in his answer? Like when was the last time they they prospected on a a, a high promise young talent? I know they tried to sign Nathan Ferguson in January, and that fell down due to a medical and that's presumably going to go ahead as and when the season ends but their long-term trend is to invest in players already at or beyond the peak of their careers and so you wonder whether he's actually been a almost a fig leaf for for their broader failings yeah I, you know i think let's sort of truncate this section into maybe one more manager we'll look at and then we can we can go back to this in in the next episode the final one today to look at is Eddie Howe at Bournemouth. We know the backstory, the way that, in essence, he saved the club, went away to Burnley, but was soon back with Bournemouth. Smallest ground in the Premier League. Some talk that they will be really financially affected by what's going on. Seb, is he at the crossroads of his career? I would say he's probably a little bit beyond the crossroads of his career. I think that for a manager like him, there's such a thing as a an ideal leaving point. When you're promising and you, you're still not the fully realised, you know, the full article, people are much more forgiving of the things that you don't do so well. So for Eddie Howe, Bournemouth have always had that asterisk against their defence, that inability to keep clean sheets at the top level. And up until probably about six months ago, that wasn't attributed to Eddie Howe himself. It was kind of one of those things that was filed away with his naiveties. I worry about what would happen to them were they to go down, but also to him, because I, I, I think the conversation has changed around him. I think 
instead of being connected with clubs like Arsenal and Everton, I think people are starting to, fairly or otherwise, notice the things that don't go so well under him. Some of the recruitment isn't terrific. I know it's not necessarily his department, but Tyro Mings' comments about injuries at Bournemouth tallied with what's happened to someone like David Brooks and Lloyd Kelly. It's not that flattering. So I, I, I think there are questions to answer. I don't think by any means that he sort of he deserves to be shunted off back to the Football League. I just think that there his next move has become incredibly important and it's not his his trajectory isn't necessarily as vertical as it once would have been. Where do you see him ended up, um I mm, it is a good question. I I agree. I I think he probably should have moved on before now. In a way, it might be best for his career to to try and re- rejuvenate Bournemouth and, and, and become that dynasty manager. I guess he already is a, a dynasty coach there. He's been there so long. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm conflicted really on on Eddie Howe because I, I've got great admiration for him. He's younger than me. He's achieved so much. He's, he's, he's the, the style of football has always been pretty pleasing on the eye. But a little bit like Daniel Farker, has he been rounded enough in his approach? Has he seen the bigger picture tactically and and I would definitely say that he hasn't he, he has ignored um organ, organ defensive organization or at least appears that way I think that the recruitment has been has been questionable down the years as well so so yeah no Eddie Howe definitely at a crossroads I don't see him ending up at an Arsenal I don't see him ending up I could, I could see him previously I thought Everton might go for him that that ship sailed of course so no, I think I think a sideways move. He could probably get a slightly bigger club in the Premier League, or or a top club in the Championship. It, yeah, I, I think I think there is a ceiling, unfortunately, for Eddie. Yeah, well, scores on the doors time for those five anyway. Don't mind kicking it off. I would give Eddie Howe and Daniel Farker six. Ralph Hassenhuttle seven. Roy Hodgson eight, just for the body of work that he's done. Yeah, yeah. And Pep Guardiola, nine. I wouldn't give him 10. He's brilliant as a leader, tactician, and as a coach. He can communicate with his players. But does he communicate with the wider world? I think I think that's an area where he lets himself down. So only nine out of 10. <laughs> what do you think, yeah, no, you're Yeah, you're a tough taskmaster, but I agree. I, I do think that's the one flaw. He's so prickly, isn't he, in, in, in presses? At times, and I do think that he's he has ignored certain flaws in in Manchester City in in recent times. There's an element of stubbornness there. I'd, I'd definitely give him a nine though for for his body of work. And like I say, I think he's he's, he's genius. I would probably go for for Hassan Hootsal as a as a seven and a half. I, I just think he's destined for bigger things. Ralph Hassan Hootsal. I can see him get a bigger job. Might not be in the Premier League, but a bigger job maybe across the continent. Roy Hodgson, a very, very solid seven. Eddie Howe, six and a half. Excellent, but I do think maybe he's peaked. And we, we all peak at different times. And I think he's gone a bit stale, really, in his tenure at Bournemouth. And Daniel Farquhar, I'll give a six. Purely on the basis that I'm not sure that he's adapted as well as I'd anticipated in, in the Premier League. So, Seb, who are you going to upset? I... <laughs> I tell you what, I'm not going to quibble with any of you except with Fark because, because, because I think I agree with Adrian's point earlier about how you sometimes it's necessary to agitate for more. But I, increasingly, I think that a lot of football clubs look at 
how head coaches fit into their structure and what kind of disruption they potentially cause. And I, I think if you look at the things that he's had to cope with, for instance, the sale of James Madison with a revenue, I think their Norwich's record transfer is still Grant Hanley. I think I might be wrong about that, but he's had to cope with an awful lot of flux and he's done it with a, a company face, with a, a, without sort of pointing fingers at people. And I think that sort of the, the tranquil politics aspect of football club life is becoming increasingly important. So I'm going to bump him up to a seven, maybe even a seven and a half. But yeah, you know, what? agreed on that Guardiola point, because it's amazing how prickly he is. It's not even, it's, it's almost conspiratorial at times. There's always a referee. He's kind of, he's almost evolving into second act Jose Mourinho month by month. It's absolutely amazing for someone that is, is fawned over as much as he has been. And, and it has been the kind of the, the hero character of so many different articles. He really doesn't tolerate criticism in any way whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll stay with you, Sam, if we may. Tournament focus. As you know, we do it every episode. We pick out a tournament. Which one do you want to do this week? Okay, so I'm going back to 2006 and the uh, World Cup in Germany. This is where I upset people. You were asked before. This, this is where I'm going to do it. Because the tournament itself is, uh, as a spectacle, fine. But I, I, I chose it because of how I felt and how I started to react to the England team during it. I think this is the point in my life where a significant fracture occurred between the way I'd responded to England playing in previous tournaments, the kind of the, you know, the nervousness, the the attachment, the investment that you had, and then this sort of outburst of celebrity culture which consumed the England team. That was the tournament when Sven Goran Eriksson allowed wives and, and girlfriends and family members around. And we had this kind of ongoing pantomime day to day in the tabloids with, you know, which wife was buying what and, you know, who was wearing what sunglasses in the stands, and I, which I think was very unfair on some of those people. Very unfair on the players. I think very unfair on the players' families. I think it was a level of scrutiny which I found pretty uncomfortable. But mixed in with that was Sven Goran Eriksson, who I still I, I still haven't really forgiven. I don't think for for how he made me feel about the England team because I before the last World Cup I read a quote from Jermaine Genus. I think I think he was writing in the Guardian and he said um, he, he remembered at different points in the tournament that he would he would sit on the substitutes bench. And he would watch what we would, which was a misfiring, underperforming England. And he would say to whoever he was sitting next to, probably Michael Carrick or whomever else, Phil Neville perhaps, it doesn't matter because no matter how bad the performance is, he's not going to drop any of these players. And I just thought, yeah, that that actually that actually summarised how I felt about it because watching, I, I, I'm not sure I could distinguish from one England performance to the next. It was always the same. It always had the same inefficiencies always quite good in the first half, always less good in the second half, always the same players failing in the same ways. And that, I think, that that started a trend of the public detaching from England for quite a long time. And I, I, I think it also feeds into what a good job Gareth Southgate has done because he's he's closed that gap. He has brought that personality and that affection back towards England side, which is is a very precious commodity. But that is yeah, what well, th- that is what 2006 reminds me of, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I get that because I suppose the nature of England's departure from the tournament was, you know, pretty revealing in terms of, okay, another loss on penalties to to Portugal in the quarterfinals, but also Wayne Rooney being sent off in that game for the stamp on Cavalio. You know, the famous Ronaldo wind-up wink. And I thought also, 
you know, I I thought there was an element of vacuity to to Ericsson, but he did come out with one great quote after that game where he talked about Rooney and said, "Don't kill him because you need him." That was a high watermark for Rooney in one way, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. He was just he was just uh, raw, and yeah, yeah, it was just one. It was just one of those things. He he, he learned from it and. Look, he's developed into a very mature sort of older player now, hasn't he, Wayne Rooney? But yeah, it was it was hard to take at the time. But no, I, I'd, I'd echo all the views. I was never a fan of of Sven Goran Eriksson, and yeah, that England team. Yeah, like you say, it was it was all about the favourites. It was all about wag status, wasn't it? Who you know the the, the most famous players and famous wives were were all that seemed to matter in that tournament from an England perspective. It was yeah, they they never stood a chance of winning it. Yeah, I, I thought it was. It was a, my view of the tournament was that the groups, were, the group stage was amazing. There were so many great games, so many goals, and then it kind of fizzled out a bit. Once things got serious, the, the games got worse. Really, in my view, which I think was a a crying shame. Obviously, the the the, the thing to remember is is the Zidane headbutt in the final. Yeah. I mean, just just like that is that is what that 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 World Cup. It's a that was just the complete jaw-dropping moment wasn't it it was like what yeah, yeah. yeah i have to rewind it what what actually happened he didn't do that did he he didn't really do it it was it was absolutely bonkers and for that to be sort of the way he bowed out was was sad i think but but also very sedan but one moment that really gets overlooked is, is Pierlo's performance in that final just sublime and i think he took the first pen of the shootout and he didn't he penenkered it and i just thought whoa world cup final Penalty shootout, your first up. So have the the nerve to do that. I just thought this man's not human. That that is too cool, mm-hmm. uh, too cool for school. So yeah, the, for, for me that was that was a real highlight. Yeah. So while we've got you in this philosophical mood, Aid, can you mm-hmm. lead us off? Uh, thought for the day, please. Right, thought for the day. I'm changing tacks on what we've just been discussing. Going back actually to something we discussed on the previous episode and that is regarding the the PFA it feels to me with with the the players together group the band of brothers that that that, that formed this this union really i think is the best way to describe it to come up with a charity venture for for the NHS i'm just so so impressed by it by the speed of it by the organisation by the cohesion of it and i it's just planted that seed in my head a little thought for the day are we heading towards a breakaway new union formed by the players for the players? Gordon Taylor's review, independent review, began two years ago, was it? Uh, no real progress as far months, as we know. Yeah. yeah, 30, yeah, so over a year. The salary is just, just ridiculous. And I feel that, that, that he is out of touch with, with the needs of the modern player. And for that reason, and the fact that they've gone and organised so brilliantly this charity... I believe they can also go and organise their own union and and set it up in time. I'm not saying it will happen, but I think that there is a, a possibility that that we this might be the beginning of the end of the PFA as we know it. All up for grabs. Seb, what's yours? Wow, that's quite taken my breath away. Well, I I was wondering whether because we've got this enforced pause, I'm wondering whether now is the time possibly to have a think about how we structure the game and the physical conditions we're enforcing on players. We're all football fans. We're here because in the beginning we wanted to watch the game. And I think we're moving towards a point at which 
because of the volume of fixtures and because of the lack of break built into the calendar, we're risking a situation where a player's prime is probably over by the time he gets to 27, 28 years old. You know, particularly the top of the game where you know, they're traveling across time zones three, four times a year. They've got an international tournament in the summer. They have probably three weeks off a year, which is just not enough. I don't want a situation in football where we are killing a golden goose, where we are denied potentially a player's finest years and, you know, the the brightest point of his spectacle. I, I think it's really, really important to recognize where we're headed. And because at the moment the calendar is in flux and because concessions are going to have to be made, I think now is really the, the, the perfect opportunity to, to think about that properly, to not just get swept along with what's happened before and to, to be led by precedent, to actually think, is this the game and is this the, the texture of game that we want going forward? And I would say no. Well, we've spoken a lot on this episode about managers and these are strange times for football managers. They're used to a highly pressurised job. They've made their plans. They've assigned their staff to small groups of their players. And now what? Well, they have to sit at home and wait. At least club managers have the prospect of return. But what about someone like Gareth Southgate? Who knows when England will play again? International football has never felt so distant. You have to wonder whether this will push him back into club football and perhaps the Premier League. Thanks for joining us on the Football Writers Podcast, and stay safe out there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.